I'm going to start off uh, high school reunions. You guys, have, have you guys had a high school reunion? Yes. Okay. It's a tough crowd. No, it's not, some of us haven't. Some of us haven't had high school reunions. That means you're like, you're 15, okay? <laughs> or, you know, maybe, you know, uh, I, I think there's probably a very American thing maybe about having a high school reunion. And a high school reunion is this moment where you, you go to school, primarily that those, those last four years of your, of your kind of uh, secondary school classes, and uh, from ninth grade to twelfth grade, from 14 to 18, and then those people, for whatever reason, are the people you're kind of growing up with. And then you all, at 18, you finish school, and you all go in different directions, and then 10 years later, you're supposed to come back and look at each other. Like, oh, what'd you do? Like, what did you do, you know? And then, and then 10 more years goes by, and you're like, you come back, okay, what did you do, right? <laughs> like, I need an update. And granted, this whole idea of a high school reunion was before Facebook, so now we kind of like know what everyone's doing. Um, but nevertheless, it's this interesting thing. And you go to this high school reunion, and you see people that you had English class with, or you had PE with, or you had some other, you know, class with, and everyone's kind of the same, right? We're all at the same starting block of life. We're just all kind of ready to jump into life. And then high school ends, and then people just go in different directions. And then you kind of come back 10 years later, and then some of the people you thought, man, that guy's going nowhere. Like, oh my goodness, he invented the post-it or something else, right? Like, you know, he made the clip that goes on the thing that went on the thing. That's amazing that you did that. And then some people, right, you're like, man, they're like the coolest person in school. Like, they like just fell flat and they did nothing. You're like, man, all right, you know, like, life's been tough for you, I guess. I'm thinking we're looking at the book of 1 Samuel here, and we're seeing a glimpse of that as well. I think chapters 13 and 14 are kind of like a mini high school reunion because you have two people. You have Saul and you have Samuel, and they both start off on the same starting blocks of life, yet with the same, the same home, obviously, the same family, the same instruction, the same raising, Yet somehow, as their lives progress, Saul's over here, and Jonathan is over here. And we're kind of like wondering, what in the world is happening? What made the difference, okay? So that's what we're, we're looking at today. We're looking at this clash between the person of Saul and the person of Samuel. Now, two thoughts before we get started and we pray. One is, is that one of the ways that you can take this sermon— and make it, I think, more memorable and meaningful spiritually for yourselves is to rehearse it again in small group, all right? Throughout the city, we have a lot of different small groups happening, and we take the passage back, uh, we take the sermon points, and we go back over them. And, you know, there, there's a, a sense in which, you know, we hear something on, on, on a Sunday, and then Monday, and then Tuesday, and then I, on Thursday, I say, hey, what was the sermon on Sunday? And you're like, oh my goodness, um, uh, you know what, I, I, I need to remind myself, I forgot already, okay? So then, so what small group happens is you get back together, and then you start kind of, you know, going through the scripture in the Bible, and, 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 and kind of eating it up together, and talking about it, and then it's like, okay, I just didn't hear it one time, now I process through it, okay? So I'm in a small group, and we're having such a sweet time, 
that could be true for you as well, all right? Find a small group, develop some friendships, and then talk about the sermon. And then what you're going to know is you're going to find yourself learning the Bible in a way that you've never learned the Bible before. Rather than just kind of having these stories kind of just sifting out there in the ether, now all of a sudden you have a handle on the book of 1 Samuel. You have a handle on the, book, the gospel of Mark or something like that, all right? Two, we're talking about Saul and we're talking about Jonathan, uh, at least for today. And there is a temptation, even on my own side, that we just kind of get lost in the, in the narrative in the story. And, uh, and there's a temptation to say, don't be like Saul, be like Jonathan, which I'm definitely going to say, okay? That's a preview. I'm definitely going to say that. But then there's this other element here. The other element is this, is that the only way we're not able to be like Saul and we're able to kind of pursue like a Jonathan-like faith is through the work of Jesus Christ himself, through his forgiveness and his power. And if we kind of just kind of dip ourselves into the story of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14, and we don't kind of have those things fresh on our mind, we kind of make the mistake of tying up our boots and saying, all right, let's go, you know? But it's only by, man, the love and the goodness and the grace of Christ that we get to be here at all. And so I want us just to kind of set our minds there. So as we delve into the story, that's kind of where our minds begin, and that's also where our minds end, okay? So let's open up 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. And I'm going to read this, and then we'll pray. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including um, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. And within the passes by, uh, passes by which uh, Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on, one, on, on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna. And the one crag rose in the north in front of Mishmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Now Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, and it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they had hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we, we will show you a thing. 
And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet, and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike with John, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as if it were half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. In the garrison, even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. And so Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hand. And then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them into the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. A mouthful, huh? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, God, we're thankful, Lord, this morning that we have this opportunity to, um, Lord, hear your word, Lord, spoken. Lord, prior to this moment, sang. And then, Lord, uh, in this moment, prayerfully, uh, Lord, um, proclaimed. Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, believe and trust you, that you would give us eyes to see and behold wondrous things from your Bible. And then, Lord, as well, God, that we would, um, Lord, build our understanding of the Scriptures. But, Lord, even greater than that, Lord, may we um, grow in our trusting of you. So may, may we not just grow, Lord, in understanding what your Bible says, Lord, but I would actually build something in us, Lord, that we would trust you more. So, Lord, we do love you. God, we thank you in your Son Christ's name. Amen. You know, as we saw in the story, it's a moment in the life of Israel where we see Saul— a little, a little lost, hanging out with his military, trying to figure out their next move. And then we see Jonathan himself just saying, you know what, I'm going to take this on my own hands, and goes up and tries to fight the Philistines himself. And it's a great display of faith. It's a great display of trust. And I think there's some really <laughs> beautiful things we get to highlight in the midst of this passage. But as the story kind of went on, as you saw— Eventually, uh, Jonathan does go up with his armor-bearer, and they start swinging some swords, and they start fighting. And what it does is it produces some confusion within the midst of the Philistines. And then what that confusion does 
is it produces some courage in the midst of the Israelites. And they rise up to go fight the Philistines. And literally by the time they get there, they see the Philistines fighting themselves because the Lord caused confusion amongst them. And the Lord kind of won the day for the Israelites. And that's where we are. There's two ideas I want to share with you. One of them I want to look at uh, Saul. And the other time I want to look at Jonathan. All right, so let me share this first idea with you. Our failures before God at time have less to do with our outright disobedience, but rather our doggedly persistent foolishness. Think about that again. Our failures before God at times have less to do with our outright disobedience but rather our doggedly persistent foolishness. One of the things that we've been talking a lot in our small group is we've just been rehearsing over the story of Saul, as we've been doing on Sunday mornings. And there's this sense in which we're kind of like, man, Saul's this bad guy, you know? You know, Israel deserves, you know, this type of a leader. But there's this other sense in the life of Saul, that I'm like, I don't, I mean, you know, his story continues, and he does some other things that are kind of, you know, you know, suspect. But at least kind of looking at Saul for where, where he came from and where he is right now, it's less of a story of this, you know, this evil perpetrator, and more of a story of someone who is just foolish, right? Persistently, doggedly, foolish. So much so that I'm even finding myself sympathizing with the guy, right? As, as Saul is doing the things he's doing, I'm thinking, I could see myself doing that, right? I can see myself kind of breaking under the pressure. I can see myself experiencing the fear that he experienced, feeling the weight that he has to kind of keep the nation of Israel on his shoulders, and so he's in this particular moment, and, uh, and things are not going well for him. And I'm thinking of Saul kind of like a character in some, you know, comedy movie. You know, think of the, the different comedies that, that you've watched over the years, okay? I'm thinking of Chris Farley and Tommy Boy, right? What, is, what does he do? Nothing right, right? <laughs> That's... You know, he asks him to put gas in the tank, and what does he do? Somehow he pulls the door off the car, right? That's Tommy Boy. Or Jim Carrey in Dumb and Dumber, right? It's like, the, the title explains itself. It's dumb, and it's <laughs> dumber. It's the two main characters of the movie. Or, going back a little farther, Bill Murray and What About Bob, right? Like, just keeps on just doing all the wrong things. He's just... And so I think, when I think of Saul, I'm kind of thinking of a guy who's kind of like that, right? His problem isn't that he's like outwardly trying to set up these altars to Baal, or he's trying to kind of move Israel into false worship. He's just finding himself doing the wrong things at the wrong time. And we had this thought, we even mentioned this in small group last week, and then I was reading in a commentary, and, a, uh, and, a, and, a, and the commentator actually said something similar. He said this, it's not that he's utterly evil, 
It's just that he's persistently foolish. While his intentions are good, right? What are his intentions, right? He's trying to, he's trying to fight the Philistines for the nation of Israel as their king, right? He's bearing that burden. So while his intentions are good, his motivation is frequently shallow and self-centered. That's who Saul is. I think another way to kind of describe him is someone who just lacks understanding, right? He just, he doesn't, he doesn't know. And part of the problem is he doesn't even know what he doesn't know. You know, sometimes it's, it's, it's healthy to, you know, it's healthy if, even if you don't know things, at least if you're aware that you don't know them, like that's even a good place to be. But Saul is the type of guy who doesn't even know what he doesn't even know. He's just, he's just lost and he's struggling. It reminds me of someone who's trying to build some sort of like new Ikea furniture, you know? Have we done that before, right? We're on step 17, and then right at that moment, we realize that step seven, we made a mistake, and then we have to like go back and start like unscrewing things, and then right, go back to step seven, and then we like slowly progress back. Okay, now we're, you know, we're back where we were just a minute ago. I think that's kind of what Saul's kind of like. But then the question is why? Why does Saul, why is Saul foolish, and why does Saul lack understanding? Like, why is he lost? I think there's two reasons. I'm kind of asking you to remember some of the sermons we've preached over the past few months. Well, I think one reason is this, is he's spiritually disinterested. And where I kind of get that from is this. If you remember the first time that we met Saul, he was the son of this wealthy guy in Benjamin who lost his donkeys. And his dad says to Saul, Saul, I need you to go out and find my, my donkeys. And so he takes a servant with him, and they start going, searching the fields, looking for these donkeys. And then it's getting late, and he's like, oh, I think I need to go back. And then his servant says to him, he's like, he's like hey, you know what? There's this godly man in the city. Let's go to him and ask him what we should do. Maybe he'll give us some good advice. It's kind of like the conversation happening. And this godly man, like this unnamed godly man, is Samuel. And this is like someone that Saul is unaware of, right? Like, and you're thinking, how does, how does some, you know, young man raised in the, the Jewish faith, in the life of Israel, he has some affluence, which means he has a good education, not know who the main priest of the nation of Israel is? It's kind of unfathomable, to be honest. It's like running into someone and, and you say to them, you know, well, the Bible says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And they're like, that's a really nice verse. I've never heard that before. And you're like, where have you been? Like, like I mean, I get if you don't know the Bible, but that's like, that's like you watch MTV and learn about John 3, 16 somehow, right? Like, like, like somehow just living in the ether, you hear these things, and somehow... Saul missed it. I think he's just, he's spiritually disinterested. So why in this moment now that Saul becomes the spiritual leader of a whole nation, why are we surprised that he doesn't have good answers to difficult questions, right? He had a poor foundation, and that's kind of led to a poor future situation with all the things that he's done, okay? He's spiritually disinterested. A second thing about Saul is he's, he's, he's kind of locked up in fear. Right 
in the moment that he's supposed to be anointed or coronated as king, what happens? They're having this big ceremony, and they're about to bring Saul forward, and then it's like this climax. You can imagine the drums are rolling, and then they say, and Saul, and he's not there, and it's like, oh, okay, where's Saul? And they find him hiding in the luggage, and it's like, this is our future king? So we have a person being described here in the scriptures who does not, is not spiritually intuitive, right? He doesn't have, like, thoughts or a mind for the scriptures or the Bible. And then we have a person, you know, I say maybe even because of that, who's just entrapped with fear, and now he's holding the weight of a nation on his shoulders, right? He's under the thumb of the Philistines, and then now we're looking at him and saying, oh, Saul, why are you making such bad decisions? It's like, of course he's going to make bad decisions. How could we expect him not to make bad decisions? Because for all of his life, he's been preparing for the wrong thing. He's been preparing to be the young man who takes over his dad's farm. And then all of a sudden, he's thrust into this position where he has to be spiritually mature, and he has to be fearless. And you know what? He's not. That's who Samuel, I mean, that's who Saul is. So look here in verse 2 and verse 3, and let's investigate this passage together. It describes Saul in verse 2. He's on the outskirts of Gibeah um, in the pomegranate cave. I've spent all week trying to understand what a pomegranate cave is. <laughs> and basically, they said they think it's just an orchard where there's a bunch of pomegranate trees and maybe kind of an arch of of a mountain that's kind of created shade, and it's just a natural place for them to kind of gather together. But he's in this pomegranate under this tree next to this cave at Migram. And then it tells us not only where he is, but also who he's with. And it says that he has 600 men. We're assuming this is his army. But then it tells us who one of the men is, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Now, this is a verse you can easily just run over, right? Hey, let's, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 14, and then you're reading it, and you're like, oh, it kind of looks like a genealogy. I'm going to move quickly, right? I'm getting someone's family history here. I'm not going to pay much attention to what's happening here. But it's interesting. Sometimes there's intriguing little ideas or facts kind of built into things like this, right? Like, we understand, we believe the Bible is fully true, without error, given to us by God, which means even these details carry some sort of meaning. So why would God, why would the author of this book want to highlight this individual? Well, we remember that Saul, in the last chapter, was just rejected as king, right? We're going to find a new king, someone after God's own heart. That was the thrust. And in chapter 14, we have now Saul with his men, and then he has this priest with him named, named Ahijah. And Ahijah's dad is named Ahitub, and Ahitub is the brother of Ichabob. And Ichabob is the son of Phinehas, and Ichabob's grandfather is a man named Eli. Now, we've been kind of going through the book of 1 Samuel, and we remember, you know, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, right? Hophni and Phinehas are these sons of Eli that are just 
bad dudes, right? They are just taking advantage of Israel. They're not spiritually minded. They are bad leaders. And eventually the Lord kind of casts judgment over the house of, Israel, over the house of Eli. And so, well, one idea, why is, why is the author here kind of connecting a hit, to, a hit tube to Eli? Well, it's to let you know, man, this is part of like the rejected priesthood line of Eli. Okay, that's one thing happening. But then he tells us who his uncle is, right? And his uncle is Ichabod. And Ichabod is the guy, if you remember, you have this moment when Hophni and Phinehas are fighting a battle, and then they die in battle, and then the ark of God is kind of taken away from Israel, and then they kind of come back to give Eli the news that his sons have died, and that the ark has been taken away, and then Eli falls over, hits his head, dies, and then Phinehas's wife, who's, you know, the, the daughter-in-law of Eli, she's pregnant, about to give birth, goes into labor, dies giving birth, but before she dies, she names her child Ichabod. So that's who this person is, right? This is the nephew of Ichabod. And then she tells us what Ichabod's name is. And do you remember what the name they gave to Ichabod? For the glory of the Lord has departed Israel, or the glory has departed Israel. So then as we're kind of reading here in 1 Samuel chapter 14, the author is painting a picture of a rejected king hanging out with a rejected priest, and his son Jonathan kind of flees camp and takes things into his own hands. I think it's a picture that uh, Saul, another picture that Saul is not the leader that the Lord has, uh, has for Israel. And it's also this idea that his house is failing. His life is failing, and his leadership as the king of Israel is failing. And, and even as it's failing, they're still striving and struggling, but it's kind of a mess, if that makes sense. So we have a rejected king and a rejected peace. Uh, a rejected king and a rejected priest. Um, but as we look at this, part of my temptation here, and I think part of our temptation over the past few weeks is to just beat up on Saul, right? We're kind of like, man, Saul's this bad guy. He's making all these bad decisions. And, you know, we just kind of say things like that, right? Like, we'll say, what a horrendous guy. Or, this is God's judgment over Israel. Or, he can't seem to do anything right. But there's just something that's a little unsettling to me, like when I think about Saul that way, you know? And I think part of the reason is, because when we're in small group, I'm like thinking, I don't know, I think I kind of would, would do that too, right? There's a part of me that sympathizes with them. And I think there's also a part of us, as we kind of cast judgment on Saul, when we say, man, what a horrendous guy, we're also saying, well, I'm not like him, right? Like, Saul's bad, but I'm not bad. Or we say, man, God's judgment over Israel, you know, this is what's happening in Saul's life, but another thing, if we say that, we're also saying, but if I was there, I would do better, right? Like, this is kind of how our minds work. Or if we say, he can't do anything right, then we're saying, well, unlike me, I would do better. It's like, it's like someone who runs a red light in traffic, and everyone starts yelling at him, and it's like, come on, man, you just ran a red light yesterday. Like, like, like we're all in this together. Like, we're all bad, Okay. And we kind of take the temptation, you know, when we think we're right in particular moments, to kind of cast judgment down upon other people. 
But I think a better way to kind of understand our relationship with Saul is not to say, man, Saul's this bad guy, but it's to kind of recognize that, hey, honestly, given the opportunity and the moment, we're kind of co-conspirators there with Saul. So as I was thinking that, two verses came to mind. Romans 5, verse 8. And Romans 5, verse 8 simply says this, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A thought that we need to have close to us, honestly, as people who cling to the Bibles and hold them, is that, is that but for the grace of God, so am I. Right? Outside of God's redemptive work in me, his saving, the power that I have through the Holy Spirit that comes upon us when we believe and trust in Christ, is, man, we're actually right there with him. So rather than being finger pointers at Saul or Saul-like people, man, we have a kind of a broken heart for him in a way. Right? Like, and that's, that's what happens when we just allow ourselves to kind of drift away from Christ and be outside of, you know, his purposes and his design for us. Another verse that came to my mind was Romans 12, verse 3. And it says this, For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. If you remember, that was actually our, our sermon passage from about three or four weeks, weeks ago. And the, the, the kind of the, the thrust in the message here is that, again, we would not think more highly of ourselves than we should, right? But that we should have a sober view of ourselves. And so I think as we're thinking about Saul, we need to kind of think in those terms. But I think there's kind of something else kind of happening here as well. And the other thing is kind of like asking the question, okay, well, I, I understand we have like this Saul guy, he's bad, but what does this mean? How do, how do we kind of make sense of this for ourselves? And I, I think the way we should think about this is we need to think of Saul as just a warning shot for us, right? One, we want to guard ourselves from being Saul-like, but then two, we want to guard ourselves from following Saul-like people, all right? So guard yourselves from being Saul-like, and then guard ourselves from following Saul-like people. Now, perhaps that seems just an easy, fun thing to say, but I tell you what, we make this mistake all the time. Who are the people you follow? What news articles do you read? What cable news channels do you fall asleep listening to? Like, if we're not careful, our minds are kind of, our minds are thrown into the stories and the dramas of TMZ or BuzzFeed or MSNBC or Fox News, and our minds are taken away from the drama of the scriptures. In some ways, we've kind of allowed ourselves to be too modern, or we've allowed ourselves to be kind of too up-to-date or too in touch with what's happening that we're so zoomed in on what's happening in the moment that we're kind of missing the overarching work that the Lord is accomplishing in history. So rather than being 
caught up in the drama of other Saul-like individuals, may we be caught up in the drama of the scriptures. And how do we do that? I think we do that by evaluating our inputs, right? Like, where where are your inputs coming from, and what are they? What were Saul's inputs? Well, my, my hunch, and the thing I tried to, you know, argue with you guys earlier, is that Saul's just spiritually disinterested, right? So then when he's in this very difficult, uh, uh, tough moment, and then he's kind of asked to be, you know, some, for some maturity to draw out of him, and he has nothing to offer, right? He's just, he just has nothing to offer. So we look at our inputs. You know, if you were to evaluate how much time have, have you spent in prayer this past week, just ask yourself that question. Am I someone who is inclined to prayer, or am I someone who's not inclined to prayer? I f- it feels awkward. It doesn't feel comfortable. Am I, am I someone inclined to read the scriptures in the Bible, or read other books that help me understand the scriptures in the Bible, or am I inclined just to, you know, kind of, you know, lean on entertainment, you know, Disney Plus and Netflix? You know, maybe a good way to kind of find out where your inputs are is just you know, look at your budget. How many subscriptions do you have, right? I have too many, by the way, okay? Maybe one of the ways that we see that. But we want to guard ourselves, and I think this is the big idea, from, from, from cultivating a Saul-like personality within ourselves or following Saul-like people as well, okay? And the way we do that, I think we have to do is look to the person of Jonathan, all right? So this is the second idea I want to share with you guys today. And it's this. Our successes before God have less to do with our great displays of wisdom, but rather our doggedly persistent trust in God's love and care. Okay, listen to that again. Our successes before God have less to do with our great displays of wisdom, but rather our doggedly persistent trust in God's love and care. So we just looked at the life of Saul. So now we have the opportunity to look at the life of Jonathan. I um, I called Saul foolish. And you would think that Jonathan's the opposite, right? So if Saul is foolish, then Jonathan is wise. But any parent looking at Jonathan, I don't think wisdom is the word that we use to describe him, right? Jonathan comes up with the fantastic idea that he wants to fight an army of people by himself, okay? If your child comes up to you and says, hey, Dad, um, I, I, I've been hearing about things happening in Ukraine, and uh, I'm just going to go there, and I'm just going to kind of take care of this myself, right? You know, you're like, um, let me call the police, okay? <laughs> like, uh, you know, okay, um, let me call your uncle, okay? <laughs> like, like, let's just, like, do something other than what you're thinking about you're wanting to do right now, okay? Um, like, so, so we think that, we think that, that, you know, obviously Saul is foolish, but it's not necessary to say that Jonathan's this wise guy as well. 
Now, perhaps there is a wisdom in there, and I think we can look at that. And definitely when we think of Proverbs chapter 3, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So Jonathan's not so completely unaware. Like, he knows what he's doing. But there's something in the life of Jonathan that we need to emulate, right? There's something beautiful happening here that is to say, yes, do less of what Saul's doing and do more of what Jonathan's doing. So then we ask the question, well, what is it that Jonathan's doing? Well, let's look at verses 6 and 7, okay? There's some, some beautiful things happening here. It says in verse 6, So Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. So it's kind of interesting that he uses the word uncircumcised because— you know, he could have just called them the Philistines. Um, but when he calls them the uncircumcised, he's explicitly acknowledging that, that he is someone under the Lord's authority, and these are people outside of, you know, submission to the Lord, right? So he's submitted to the Lord. These people are not submitted to the Lord, and that's what that word uncircumcised does. And then he says this, it may be that the Lord will work for us, and then listen to this next phrase. And I, I would even suggest that this next phrase is worth memorizing this week. Go through, memorize this verse, and then when you go back to small group, try to recite it to each other. And it's not long and it's not hard. But he says this, For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So it means that the Lord can use the mightiest army in the world and accomplish his purposes. But it also means that the Lord can use the most pitiful army in the, Lord, in the world and accomplish his purposes. And somehow, Jonathan's in tune with this reality in a way that Saul is not. And so the difference between Saul and Samuel, I don't think, is, is not the difference between foolishness and wisdom. It's the difference in trusting and not trusting. Okay? And that's what Jonathan's bringing to the table. He's deciding he's going to trust the Lord. He's also deciding he's going to believe the Lord. Now, in previous chapters— there's been several moments where Samuel's talking to the nation of Israel, and he's like telling them, right? Obey the Lord. Submit yourselves to the Lord. Follow the Lord. And the Lord is going to protect you, and he's going to see you through, right? Like there's a lot of this type of talk. And it's almost like I can see Jonathan like listening to Samuel and, and hearing the words that Samuel's saying, right? And then, and, and, and then by association, believing the Bible and the words of God itself, and then, and, then, and then just taking it at face value and saying, you know what? I believe that. So then he comes up with this crazy idea. Hey, how about me and you go over to the Philistine garrison, and then you know what? If the Lord decides it's what he wants to do, we're going to defeat the army on our own. And that's what he decides to do. So I think what we learn from Jonathan, we learn something important here. We learn how to trust the Lord. Now, you would think that as we get older, we're actually 
we're actually learned to trust him more. But unfortunately, the way our, the trajectory of our lives work, oftentimes it's the opposite. The older we get, the more we stop trusting the Lord. Or we start gaining some intuitions not to believe he will do what he says he'll do. And so it seems that it's, it's a young thought to say, man, the Lord says it, I believe it, and I'm going to put myself behind it. And Jesus had a phrase for this. And he called this type of trust, or this type of faith, a childlike faith. And why is he called a childlike faith? Because when you go to a child, and they ask you a question, and you say to them, well, this is how it is. You know what the child believes? Exactly what you said to them. Which means, better be careful what you tell your children, okay? But then two, it means that we have this great example in young people, our children, of how we are meant to respond to the Lord. And that's to build the intuition to trust Him and fight against the inertia of our older ages that is maybe inclining us not to trust Him. Right? So I think that's one of the things that we learn from Jonathan. I'm reminded of the, uh, the, 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 the nursery song, the nursery hymn, um, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know. What is the second half? For the Bible tells me so. Right? How, how, where, do I, where do I get this idea that Jesus loves me? I connect it directly to what the scriptures say. So if you want to have a faith like Jonathan has, then it means that you have to be the type of person who wants to connect yourself to the Bible and then believe it. Because the temptation we have, the older we get, is to say, man, I just don't believe. Or, I wish I had faith like you had. Right? Or, I just have a lot of questions. And then so we spend large amounts of our adulthood kind of like, just sitting on walls, not making decisions either way, and never deciding to trust the Lord. But you know what we get? We get Saul-like outcomes rather than Jonathan-like outcomes. So then uh, I think a healthy question to ask is, if, if you were to have a, um, a bent like Jonathan had, if you were to actually believe what the Bible says— that God is in control of all things, right? And not one thing happens outside of his purposes. And that he has the power to do whatever he wants. How would the decisions in your life that you made be different? Maybe you would make different decisions in the way that you handled yourself around people. Maybe you would make different decisions in the way that you choose to share the gospel with people or not share the gospel with people. Maybe the fear that has been so binding upon your life may just be released, and you're like, you know what? I, don't, I, I choose not to fear people. I only fear God now. It seems through Jonathan that the more we learn to trust God in just this simple, basic way, the more in which we experience the, um, the greatness of God. I think we all want to experience the greatness of God. But there's something else we learn here in uh, through Samuel, okay? And this goes back to verse 6. Um, 
Okay, it says, so he tells his servant, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. And then he says this, it may be that. Now, is that what you would expect him to say? You might expect him to say, let's go over to this garrison, and the Lord's going to do some mighty thing in us, right? And we're actually taught, like this is a, a, a regular thought, man, the way you express your faith is you believe something so much, and if you believe it enough, it's going to happen. And that's what faith is, right? Sometimes this has been described as, I'm going to name this thing, and then I'm going to claim this thing. And so we kind of connect these two thoughts. And if it doesn't happen, then what, what, what do people say to you? Your faith was weak. You just didn't believe enough, right? Like you need to go back and try to, you know, you need to put some more oil in that faith engine of yours, pull that cord and get that thing working again, because you know what? Your faith was, my, it was small. Okay, well, Jonathan's faith is not small, but Jonathan knows a little bit more about how the Lord works. And one of the ways the Lord works, well, first of all, he does whatever he wants to do, Two, we don't have God's mind in us, right? Like, like we don't understand, we don't know all things the, Lord, the way the Lord knows all things. But we do know through the Bible and through, you know, Jesus' teachings to us that, that God is in control of all things. He can do whatever he wants to do. And Jonathan knows that, but he doesn't know the outcome of his current actions. So this is what he says. He says this, it may be that the Lord will work for us. You hear how he does that? Like, he is so confident that the Lord can do whatever he wants to do, but he's, he's not fully understanding if the Lord will do it in this current moment. We see this same type of thing in Daniel chapter 3. Go, go back later this afternoon and read Daniel chapter 3, the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there's this moment where these three people are thrown into a fiery pit. A fiery furnace is what the Bible calls it. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says, the Lord can save us from this. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your idols, right? That's what he says. And so there's this idea where they kind of like, they state very strongly, man, the Lord can and he, he will rescue us. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow down to you. So there's this principle that I think we see in Daniel I think we see a glimpse here in the life of Jonathan that we are called to have, like, strong faith in the Lord, but we surrender our lives to his purposes. So for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they thought, you know what? I know the Lord's in control, and this outcome is going to work out with either us surviving the fire or us, us dying in the fire. But either way, it's all within the Lord's purposes and plans. If we live, the way Paul says it, it's for Christ. You know, if, 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 you know to live is, uh, oh my goodness, uh, to live is Christ, to die is gain, right? So if I decide to, if, if the Lord allows me to live, right, it's good. I, I get to serve the Lord longer. If I die, I gain, I go with the Lord. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had this idea. Jonathan has this idea as well. It may be that the Lord will do this, but it may not be as well. So I think the principle here when we think about prayer is that we pray boldly for things, but we surrender completely to things, all right? Pray boldly, surrender completely. Can the Lord answer your prayer? Absolutely he can, right? But we also know that uh, the Lord's mind and the Lord's purposes are beyond our comprehension. 
So we, we don't know all the things that are at work all the time. And so we might be fighting for something, wanting this thing, but it's like, no, no, this isn't, this isn't the way the perfect plan works. And so you know what we do? It's like, you know what, Lord, I want to surrender to your plan for my life rather than trying to exert my own will over my own life that's outside of your purposes. And oftentimes when we, when we desire something so much that we seek to kind of claim it for ourselves, and we're trying to kind of call on the Lord's name to kind of claim it, and then it doesn't happen, one, it crushes our faith, and two, we're misunderstanding what the Lord's actually trying to do in us anyways, okay? So we want to be like Jonathan and learn that lesson in prayer. I think another thing that happened here is that we were reminded that it's God who accomplishes things. So if you remember the story as we read it and as we rehearsed it, it's the the, the Philistines start going into confusion. And then three groups of people, like, just wake up, right? The army wakes up. They see the confusion, and they're like, okay, n- now it's time to go. All the Israelites have been hiding in holes. They realize, okay, it's time to get up out of the hole and go. Like, this is our time. And then this other group of people, there was these, these Israelites that were living in the camp, right, of the Philistines. Like, just surrender to this idea that we've already lost, Right? They're just, um, you know, if, I'm either going to, you know, be here and be their slave, or I'm going to die by their sword. I'd rather just, you know, find a way to live. So you had these Israelites living in their camp. And so you had, you know, these three groups who kind of gained the courage to finally stand up against the Philistines, and then what happens? Do they beat them? The Bible tells us that the Lord causes the uh, Philistines to turn their swords on each other. They start fighting and start killing each other, and then the Bible ends here in verse 23 right, of chapter 14, and it says, so the Lord saved Israel that day. Who accomplished the victory of the Lord? It wasn't Jonathan. It wasn't Saul, for sure. It wasn't the massive amount of 600 men who fought against the Philistines. It wasn't all the other Israelites who jumped out of caves. It wasn't that there was, like, some, like, infiltrators inside their camp that started doing things. No, the only way that that Israel experienced their victory that day was because the Lord accomplished it in a miraculous way. He even said that he even brought like an earthquake and the, the earth, you know, rumbled beneath them, right? If the earth is rumbling and there's confusion and they're turning against each other and the Israelites see it, what do they think? Man, this isn't us. This is the Lord. And it's almost as if the Lord did this to teach the Israelites that, hey, I am in control and I am the God of the heavens and the earth and I've called you to what, submit to me, to, to love me, to worship me, which is the call that we have as, as, as Christians. So we're reminded that it's God who accomplishes it, not us. And then we're taught a lesson in fear. So the situation with the Philistines was very dark and grim. They had their thumbs over the people of Israel. They were crushing them. Um, it told us at the end of chapter 13 that the Israelites were not even able to make their own weapons because uh, they did not allow the Israelites to have a blacksmith in their towns. So if the Israelites wanted to use their farming tools and get them sharpened, they had to go to Philistine towns to sharpen their tools. And then they could go back and they could have tools that they could use. So they were oppressed. They were under the thumb of these, this Philistine people. And uh, there's some common ways that we respond to fear, right? I, these situations produce an immense amount of fear in us. Think of, think of what the people of Ukraine are feeling right now. I think they would, they're experiencing an immense amount of fear 
with this whole army surrounding their country. I know I would, okay? And they say that one of the responses that, that we have uh, to fear is we fight, right? You guys have heard that? Are there any fighters in here? Don't admit it. Don't admit it. We're know who you are. Okay. All right. <laughs> you experience fear, and what do you do? If you're, you're hit, you hit back harder, right? That's how you respond. And you're not being strong. You're actually just being weak, right? That's, that's, that's what we know that response is. It's a display of weakness, even though it kind of looks like strength from the outside. But it's, it's all happening because of fear. Flight is the other one, right? We, one of the ways we respond to fear is by running away. And you could think of all the Israelites hiding in holes and caves. The other, Saul in the 600, kind of licking their wounds under this pomegranate tree. Right? They're fleeing. They're fleeing. They don't know what to do. Another response is freezing. Right? Like if, if someone, um, if someone, if, if, if someone's like attacking you in some way, maybe verbally, or you're fearful of your boss at work, or some other individual who's threatening you, or threatening a lawsuit over you, or whatever, whatever kind of circumstances kind of built to make you experience fear, one way is just to freeze, and it's like, I don't know what to do. I'm just lost. Another response to fear, which I hadn't heard before, was fawning. Right? That, that if we fear someone, sometimes we, we try to counteract that by trying to love them in a weird way, because if, if I can love them and get on their side, maybe they won't hurt me anymore. You can think of maybe a woman who's in a domestic abuse situation, right? She's being hurt in her relationship, and so she's responding by trying to fawn or trying to love the individual so the individual won't hurt her. I think that's actually what we're seeing here with the Israelites as well. Why are those Israelites in the camp of the Philistines? They're just tired of being oppressed, they're just joining the Philistines and trying to love them so they're not going to be beat up anymore. They just, they, they just want some rest. But there is another category. So it's not fighting, it's not fleeing, it's not freezing, and it's not fawning, okay? And it's the way that Jonathan responded in its faith, okay? So one of the ways, or actually, let's say, the way a Christian responds to fear it's through none of those four ways I mentioned, but it's through faith. And that's what Jonathan did. And you see how faith made Jonathan fearless? So practically, if, if, if you're in a situation and someone is making you fearful, like maybe it's a boss who keeps on threatening to fire you. Maybe it's some neighbor who keeps on threatening to call the police or call the county on you for some random reason. Or maybe it's some bully at a gas station, right, who's threatening you because you got to the pump before he got to the pump. And we're tempted in all these moments to kind of, you know, shrink back in fear. But what Jonathan did was he believed the Lord was more powerful than the situations that were in front of him, and he responded differently. And that's what we're called to do as believers and Christians. So I began with reminding us, how do we do this? Only in Christ. The way to be a Saul-like person is to forget Jesus, forget the Bible, and just go on your own life. And you know what? How foolish of a life you may live. But in Christ, how can you have like that fearlessness that Jonathan exhibited? It's not by going to the gym and training yourself in fearlessness. It's not by learning how to be a better debater and better with your words. 
It's, it's learning how to trust the Lord completely with your life. And we practice that each time we experience some sort of fear or difficulty. We practice that. And as we practice that, man, the Lord Jesus, he gives us power to be fearless. He gives us power to be full of faith. And he gives us the reckless abandon to grab our swords and run after the Philistines by ourselves. All right? And so that's what we have before us today. We have two examples, two men. You know, kind of the question is, which one will you choose? I pray that we desire to be more Jonathan-like than Saul-like. And then two, I, I, I pray that we all realize that the way that we honor the Lord is by submitting ourselves to the Bible, to prayer, to Christ himself. And as the Lord forgives us, he infuses us with power. So, do love you, friends and family. Um, let's remember this. And hey, a healthy task, go back and talk about this over lunch and try to remind ourselves. Ask good questions to each other.